Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Hello and welcome to Key Films of World War II in Europe. This is your host, James Early, as always. And as always, I've got Sean McIver with me. This week, we are going to discuss a much-loved, especially by guys, a much-loved classic action war film from 1967 called The Dirty Dozen. Oh, lots of people, not just guys, men and women love this movie and we're going to give a brief overview of it. So we'll talk about the basics as we always do. And then I'm going to hand it over to Sean to give us a little bit of some interesting background about it. The movie is two hours and 30 minutes long on Rotten Tomatoes. 81% of the critics gave it a positive rating, whereas 90% of the fans did. It's a real fan favorite. The rating on IMDb is 7.7. The director is Robert Aldrich. And the movie has quite a cast. It's got Lee Marvin, who we've had before in the Big Red One. He's back. Also features Ernest Borgnine, Charles Bronson, John Cassavetes, Jim Brown, Richard Jekyll, George Kennedy, Trini Lopez, Ralph Meeker, Robert Ryan, Telly Savalas, and Donald Sutherland. It's based on the 1965 book by E.M. Nathanson, which was inspired by a real-life World War II unit a behind-the-lines demolition specialist from the 101st Airborne Division named the Filthy 13. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actor for Cassavetes, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and Best Sound Effects, which it won. It was also nominated for several other awards besides the Oscars, and it won two of those. So, pretty impressive. Sean, tell us a little bit about the background of this movie, history, production, or anything else that comes to mind. Yeah, so the film itself had been worked on for a number of years. Robert Aldrich, who is a director of the film, he's a one of the classic war, you know, classic movie directors. He directed Kiss Me Deadly. He directed uh, Whatever Happened to Betty uh, to Baby Jane. He directed Flight of the Phoenix, uh, which is this was a little bit later, or actually before that, 1965. And he directed The Longest Yard after later, uh, the great Burt Reynolds prison football movie of all things. Aldrich had. He's kind of an independent producer and director, but he'd been trying to get the film for quite a while. He actually tried to buy it before it was even published, the film rights. But in the end, in 1965, the novel became a bestseller. And so it was adapted by producer and scriptwriter Emily Johnson and Lucas Heller. And 
So the film itself, you know, went into production and then in the late 1960s. And by this time, you know, in the late 1960s, the war movie was kind of starting to get long in the tooth, especially as American involvement in Vietnam was becoming much more, more and more prominent and pronounced. And so the tone of the film itself becomes a lot more, it's actually considered kind of a, not an anti-war movie, but an anti-war, like an, like an anti-Western, like sort of the, kind of the flip of the war movie. So instead of these, you know, the story then you know, became something that was a uh, more palatable to the audience and that it was, doesn't present the army in a very good way. It's kind of a down story and it's kind of a weird, you know, the, the weird story where the characters are not great. The army is, comes across looking worse than the actual main characters, you know, and they're iconoclastic characters who are sort of counterculture figures. So that's what went into is kind of the, the making of the film and the sort of the popularity of the film. Um, actually, John Wayne was originally the choice for the Lee Marvin character, but he didn't like the script. He felt like it was, there was actually some elements in the script that were dropped because where Reisman had a relationship with an English woman, who a married English woman, John Wayne didn't like that. It ended up getting dropped from the story. Jack Palance actually was supposed to play the part that went to Telly Savalas, but he didn't want to play uh, a racist. So he, they wouldn't rewrite the script to cut the racism, so he dropped out of the film. Of the film itself, a number of them were World War II veterans, including Lee Marvin, Robert Ryan, Telly Savalas, George Kennedy, Charles Bronson, Ernest Borgnine, and Clint Walker, who plays the he plays the big guy Posey. He plays the you know the big broad-shouldered prisoner. And interesting casting was Jim Brown. Jim Brown, of course, is considered to be the the greatest college football player and possibly the greatest NFL player in history. He was one of the greats of the 1960s. He is, at the time, he was the NFL's all-time leading rusher, and he chose to become an actor. And so casting Jim Brown as a character, as a black soldier in this group of soldiers in a time when the Army was segregated was also a controversial concept as well. And the film was made in England, and you can tell it was filmed in Britain because it's where it's set. And it is interesting because it was based on a novel, and the Filthy 13, the hundred, you know, the, the militia specialist of the 101st Airborne Division did exist. But when The Dirty Dozen came out, when the book came out, there was a, even at that point supposedly a legend that a, such a unit as the story tells really did exist, which was prisoners who were parachuted ahead of on a suicide mission ahead of the, the invasion really happened. It didn't happen, but the filthy 13, the paratroopers really did happen. So yeah, so let's get into the movie. Let's do it. The film opens up with, it, it's a pretty shocking scene. It really makes you go, oh, wow, <laughs> they're getting right into it. I was watching it with my wife, and one of my daughters walked into the room and said, what are you watching? <laughs> it opens with the execution of a U.S. soldier for murder. The execution is witnessed, and it's by hanging. And it's witnessed by Army Major John Reisman, played, of course, by Lee Marvin. I don't think we need to really talk much about Lee Marvin. We talked a ton about him in the uh, the Big Red One episode, yeah. one of the ultimate greats of Hollywood action movies, uh, as Sean mentioned World War II veteran. If I remember correctly, he was a Marine, was injured at the Battle of Saipan and yes. uh, wounded and and had to sit out the rest of the war. But yeah, just one of the all-time greats. 
and he got a promotion. He was in the big red one. He was a sergeant. Here he's a colonel. Now he's a major. Well, he's a major, but actually this movie is much earlier than the big red one. So I guess you could say he got busted. <laughs> anyway, I'm just, I'm being silly. But this uh, Major Reisman, Lee Marvin's character, he has a history of bucking authority, including that of his former commander, Colonel Breed, who is played by Robert Ryan. And he was in, oh, he was in uh, another one of our movies. I think it was The Longest Day, right? Yes, he was. I believe he was, he was the two old Jim Gavin <laughs> that we talked yes, about. Two old Jim Gavin. In 1960. Yeah, he he's very much too old to play a colonel here, but okay. Yeah. Oh, well, what can you do? That's yes. a common theme. Now, under the authority of General Warden, who is played by Ernest Borgnine, another famous American character, actor, action movie guy. Yeah. What's he most famous for? Marty. Marty. He won an Oscar for, being, for playing Marty in the movie Marty. And Borgnine and Ryan also... She either just recently been in or would soon be in The Wild Bunch together as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I've never seen Marty, but what can you say? I know uh, I Ernest Borgnine was in the remake of All Quiet on the Western Front, the TV version that came yes. out in 79. He was Cat. So He was. He was also in Airwolf <laughs> in the 80s. He was the mean sergeant. He was the bully sergeant in From Here to Eternity. Yeah, and actually, most people of our generation would either know him from Airwolf or, since you're just a few years older than me, uh, Mikhail's Navy. He was in Mikhail's Navy. Oh, yeah. So we would have watched him as kids on uh, reruns <laughs> in Mikhail's Navy on reruns in the afternoons on TV yeah, or on Saturday afternoons. But yeah, he was yeah, he was in the Poseidon Adventure. He was in Flight of the Phoenix. He was in The Black Hole. He was in uh, Escape from New York, Ice Station Zebra. He was just, he was one of the great, you know, he, you're right. He's one of the great character actors. Uh, Wild Bunch was two years later. So he and Robert Ryan were both in the Wild Bunch a little bit later. Well, Major Reisman is ordered by the general to lead a commando unit composed of soldiers currently serving jail sentences. And these are guys who are either serving a, they're under a death sentence for murder, rape or something horrible, or they're in long-term sentences, like 20 years of hard labor. Right. Not, not the most promising group of guys. Yeah. Their mission is a stealth airborne attack on a posh vacation chateau for Wehrmacht officers in occupied France. And the hope is that they will disrupt German command before an Allied invasion. So this is going to happen June 5th or so, June 4th, June 5th. And it is essentially a suicide mission. And Reisman is not wild about the idea. He persuades the general to grant a pardon to any of the convicts who survived the mission. After reviewing their qualifications and their crime history, and after conducting an interview with each candidate, Reisman selects 12 military convicts sentenced to death, as I mentioned, or long prison terms, and he asks them, will you volunteer for this in return for full pardons? Most of them do. Some of them are reluctant, but eventually he talks them into it. The convicts include Vladislav, who is Charles Bronson. We know we haven't had him yet. He's going to be on another one later, but... We'll talk more about Charles Bronson in a minute. Sean and I were actually uh, had a chat about him earlier today. He's a fascinating person, but let, let me just finish out the paragraph and then we'll go into some detail about these characters. Vladislav uh, is a German-speaking former officer who attacked a superior rather than follow a foolish order. You also have Jefferson, who is a black soldier convicted of what is heavily implied to be a false rape charge. That, of course, is Jim Brown's character. 
a gangster, street tough guy, Franco, played by John Cassavetes, psychopath Maggot, which I find is a fascinating name, who's also a Southerner, he's also very racist, played by Telly Savalas, mm-hmm. and the mentally slow, pinkly Donald Sutherland. Yeah. Uh, Tell me another- about Charles Bronson. Well, and it, actually another person that's in okay. in the cast, that's in the group is singer Trini Lopez. Uh, yeah, how could I forget him? Yeah, he plays Pedro Jimenez, uh, you know, famous uh, If I Had a Hammer and mm-hmm. Boardwalk and many other songs. So, you know, we got we to cast a top star. Uh, <laughs> in our, in yeah, our, that's even a rule, even to the present. <laughs> even, even as late as 1967, you still got to cast a pop star. I mean, I mean, they they did it in Dunkirk. They did it in Midway. The uh, yeah. what's the Korean War movie? Devotion has one of the Jonas Brothers, I think. So, yeah. oh no, Midway has a Jonas Brother. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, a different yeah. Jonas Brothers. It's, it's a tradition that never seems to die. Yeah, and another one uh, I mentioned, Clint Walker. This is Posey. He's the he's the big, huge guy with the big chest and big, broad shoulders. He's a kind of a country boy. Clint Walker was a he was a cowboy actor in uh television actor he did the series cheyenne he was a amateur bodybuilder so uh, but yeah these are you know big names pretty big names in this cast john cassavetes who was an actor but more famous later as an independent filmmaker as a director and a writer of course telly savalas come on he's he went out he went out to be kojak and, and donald sutherland who's still alive and is still acting he was in you know, he was in the Hunger Games movies. He's will, yeah, we'll see him. He's really, really great in the movie Kelly's Heroes. And then my favorite part that he played ever is in uh, Mash. He plays the he's the original Hawkeye Pierce. And so, but yeah, Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson is a famous one of the great Hollywood tough guys. By nineteen sixty seven, he was a major star. We'll see him in another movie several years earlier, and that's going to be The Great Escape. And, of course, he had already also been in The Magnificent Seven. It was The Magnificent Seven was kind of his breakout movie. But he famously always played the tough, taciturn <laughs> person, and he always had this slight accent. He generally played someone who was Eastern European and because his father, his parents were Lithuanian. They were Lithuanian immigrants. His dad was a coal miner in Pennsylvania. Brosson was the first person in his family ever to go to school and to graduate from high school, but he also worked in the coal mines as a young man, as, as a young person, served during the war. But actually, the interesting thing is before he went to school, he never spoke English. He didn't speak English until he went to primary school, until he went to grammar school, because his family spoke Lithuanian, and he spoke Lithuanian at home. He actually spoke several languages. He spoke English, Lithuanian, Russian, and Greek. And I believe that was because those were the the communities of coal miners that were working in the area of Pennsylvania that he lived. And he, and he could he also could speak German, a little bit of German that he picked up being an actor and stuff. But he was uh, served in the war in the Air Force. He was a gunner on a B-29, flew 29, uh, 25 missions over Japan and was awarded this Purple Heart. So and then he became an actor after the war and became famous by the 1960s and 70s is for a, a gobs of different things and you know most famously probably for the death wish movies i would say and for the magnificent seven and for this movie and for the the great escape and then once upon a time in the west as well he was the star of that movie so there you go well so the 
men are going to be taken to a heavily guarded remote camp for training. And the guards that are assigned are led by Sergeant Bowron, who was the sergeant uh, escorting Reisman through the prison as he's doing his interviews with each of these prisoners. And this is played by actor Richard Jekyll. And we've seen Richard Jekyll. He was in the movie Battleground. He was the guy who sort of broke and ran during the fighting. And he ended up working in a kitchen, in the field kitchen in, in Bastogne. So this is uh, several years later he's playing here. He also was in Sands of Iwo Jima. We watched that film last year. Or I'm sorry, in the previous season. But yeah, Bowron is not a prisoner. He is a sergeant. He's a guard. He's a military policeman. So they are put to work, and they're put to work building this camp's buildings. There's no buildings there. There's just tents, or not even tents at that point. And so if they want to have a camp, they've got to put together the buildings, and then they're going to go through rigorous training. Now, Franco, played by John Cassavetes, he tries to escape. But the deal is, is if anybody tries to escape, then everybody goes back to prison. And so Vladislaw and Jefferson, this is Posey, or sorry, Jefferson, this is Jim Brown's character, they stop him. They keep him from going. Uh, and actually, Posey helps as well. Meanwhile, Captain Kinder, who is a psychiatrist, he comes aboard and interviews all the men. He warns Reisman that these men are a bunch of psychopaths, murderers, borderline idiots, low intelligence for several of them, but that one of them is bound to try and kill Reisman. And they are nonconformist by nature. They're going to resist any type of authority. And so Reisman decides he's going to resort to harsh discipline and incentives to motivate the uncooperative group. He initially deprives them of warm water for shaving. And so Sergeant Bowron labels them the dirty dozen. The men refuse to shave. And as a result, Reisman orders they don't get any shaving equipment, soap, or hot food. They're only given K-rations to eat. Now, as time passes, they finally begin to learn how to work together as a group. They unite and being angry at him, basically. Reisman rewards them by restoring the hot food. James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, the Dirty Dozen, so-called, complete their preliminary training and they are transported to the 101st Airborne's training camp where they will learn to do parachute jumps. 
Colonel Breed is the commander there. Remember, that's Reisman's old commander that he doesn't like. Reisman wants to do whatever it takes to avoid Breed and to keep Breed out of his business. Prior to departing, Reisman has Captain Kinder tell Colonel Breed that the mission of Reisman and his men is top secret and that when they arrive, they will have a general with them, which they do not have a general with them. And this is really funny. When the men arrive at the 101st camp, Breed asks Reisman if the general will inspect the platoon. And, and Major Reisman says, all right, which one of you guys wants to be a general? And he ends up selecting Pinkley, the one that's kind of a half-wit, Donald Sutherland's character. He's the youngest. Immerse- He's the youngest. He's the youngest. Yeah. And, and he's still got a beard. Yeah. Looks completely slovenly. Not like a general would look in most cases. And he does it. And so they walk around inspecting, quote unquote, air quotes, inspecting the platoon and, and the other members of the dozen laugh as this fake general inspects the platoon. And he even stops a couple times and does the typical thing. Where are you from, son? And the guy says, oh, something or else. I can't remember where it was, Sean. Something Iowa. And the guy yeah, in Binkley says, I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. That's how he says it. Exactly. Yeah. It's so funny. It just keeps going. Yeah, it's, it's a great scene. It's very funny. Comic relief. Yes. Well, so, of course, this does not make Breed very happy. He quickly realizes that he's been had. And so, in the the bathroom, uh, the mess, the not the mess, in the head of the, uh, the 101st training facility, two sergeants go in, and they go to beat up Vladislav, and they're trying to find out who he is, but he refuses to talk. Jefferson and Posey come in, and they rescue him, and... They're impressed as well, and Reisman also is impressed that he will not, he won't give up Reisman's deal. What's going on? Because Reed doesn't know. Reed has no idea, and Reisman's under orders not to let anybody find out what is actually has gone on, what he's doing. So the next day, they begin their parachute training, and the men work hard and they do well. And as a reward, he brings a group of local prostitutes for a party for the men. He isolates the misogynist magnet. Magnet is not only racist and a psychopath he is uh misogynist he hates women and he's psychotically religious at that so he's all kinds of terrible mixed up into one so he puts him in the guard tower for the safety of the women because he is a vicious vicious monster and he's up there in you know shouting invective at Reisman for allowing you know these this sinful actions to happen well, Colonel Breed finds out about this breach of regulation, and he is furious. He comes in to the camp and tries to take over, actually, and he tries to force Franco to shave, but Franco refuses. So then there's a scuffle and a fight, and it breaks out between the Dirty Dozen and Breed and his men. And actually, Reisman yeah, pulls a, a submachine gun out and fires it on the ground and basically sends out Breed and his men at gunpoint. Well, Warden and another general named General Denton, he's a brigadier general, played by Robert Weber. So Robert Weber is a great, another great character actor. If you've, if you saw, he was in Twelve Angry Men. That's probably his best, most famous movie. And he was also in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and The Sandpiper and a lot of other movies. If you've seen him, you'll know who he is. At any rate, Weber is basically trying to talk Warden, who's a major general, into getting, you know, reprimanding Reisman. Sending the men back to their sentences, just just scrapping the whole deal. And Reisman begs that he and his men be given another chance because he doesn't feel like they were set up to fail. It basically is how he feels. 
And Colonel Breed, who's there, he demands that they have to prove themselves. They haven't shown anything, even though he doesn't know anything about what they're doing. So arrangements are made for them to participate in a war game that's coming up. So there's a big war game between the different units that's happening on the English countryside. Now, Major Max Armbruster, George Kennedy, who, you know, famously from the the police, the Naked Gun movie, uh, movies and police story television series, he is a friend of Reisman. He actually is the one who recommended Reisman for the job. He's the chief of staff for General Warden. He's assigned to monitor the men. So the Dirty Dozen, the men, they think outside the box in order to achieve their objective. And they're doing things such as they they basically, each side has armbands, red and blue armbands, and so they swap armbands. So they basically pretend to be on whatever side in the area that they're in, pretend to be on that side. They steal an, a Jeep and an ambulance, blow up the Jeep to create a diversion. They have another Jeep where they bring in a person who's pretending to be wounded, and they get to the... Colonel Breed's headquarters with the wounded, the quote, wounded soldier. Well, the other men are coming in with a stolen ambulance and with a machine gun in the back. And General Warden is there, armbruster is with the men, but then they, there you have him. He's holding on to the ambulance and they, they sort of jiggle the steering wheel and, you know, throw him off the ambulance onto the side of the road. Warden gets in his Jeep, but Warden kind of figures out, he kind of figures out that it's, it's Wadislaw and hit and is sort of leading the, the group that's actually in the Breed's headquarters while the others are coming. It, Worden kind of figures out these are not Breed's soldiers. These are the uh, Reisman's men. He doesn't say anything. He, st- he stays in partial. So he gets in his Jeep and he kind of drives off, but he sort of stays nearby. And they pull the ambulance, back it up to the door of the headquarters, and then jump out with their rifles and they capture Breed. <laughs> so they win the game. And Warden is impressed, Armbruster is impressed, everybody's impressed, and Breed is humiliated, but Warden gives a clearance for Reisman to go on the mission. Yeah, that's a very funny scene as well of that part. Uh, let's see. So, well, now training for their mission commences in earnest. Rather than having complex instructions that the men might not remember, Reisman develops a chant for them all to memorize each part of the attack plan. And this is one of the most famous parts of the movie and often quoted so it goes like this. One, down to the roadblock. We've just begun. Two, the guards are through. Three, the major's men are on a spree. Four, Major and Wadislav go through the door. Five, Pinkley stays out in the drive. Six, the major gives the rope a fix. Seven, Wadislav throws the hook to heaven. Eight, Jimenez has got a date. Nine, the other guys go up the line. Ten, Sawyer and Gilpin are in the pen. 11. Posey guards points 5 and 7. 12. Wadislav and the Major go down to delve. 13. Franco goes up without being seen. 14. Zero hour. Jimenez cuts the cable. Franco cuts the phone. 15. Franco goes in to where the others have been. 16. We all come out like it's Halloween. And the group recites this constantly to drive it into their minds. But as we all know, What's the old saying? No battle plan survives contact with the enemy, so things always go wrong. So, Sean, what goes wrong? <laughs> well, everything does. But no, actually, yeah. it doesn't go terribly wrong. The first Some thing of it goes right. Yeah, the first thing that happens though is poor him and Trini Lopez. He got to sing a song earlier, but unfortunately, he dies during the jump. He's killed. So they're down to eleven. 
Sean, this is the part where famously in the movie Sleepless in Seattle, that Tom Hanks' character and this other guy start crying about it. You remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> Trudy Lopez, Doc, gets killed. It's uh, that's so funny. It's it's you know a movie is classic when it shows up in another movie when they discuss yeah. it. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, and, so, and actually, it's not the dozen that jump in. It's fourteen because Richard Jekyll's character, the sergeant. He's with them, Bowerin, and then Reisman is with them. So it's actually 14, but now they're down to 13. So Gilpin, one of the other soldiers, he has to sub in for Jimenez to go up the side of the the up the side of the building and to the roof to basically cut down the antenna tower. Well, his leg gets trapped in the roof as the roof gives way, and he has to basically pull a grenade and blow up the antenna tower. Reisman and Wadisaw, so this this happens a little bit later, but Reisman and Ladislaw, they go they go into the party. They capture a German staff car, and there's some officers, and they basically take them, they strip them down, and then Plinkley Pinkley is the driver, and Ladislaw and Reisman are dressed in German officer uniforms. And, of course, and so Ladislaw plays the, the aide, like a lieutenant, so that he can translate. He does all the talking, basically. So they kind of saunter into the party and some people try to talk to Reisman. Reisman doesn't speak German. And so he's, he's like, eh, and he's kind of trying to trying to nod along, but not he doesn't really understand. And, and then Wadisla comes and kind of rescues him. But so they get up to the second floor of the room and they put the ropes out for the other men to climb in. Well, of course, things are going to go wrong when Maggot comes in because when he, he's hiding in a room and a woman comes in. And that's enough for him. He he basically has what amounts to a rape murder scene. Uh, it's not graphic, but he tells her to scream. He stabs her. Then he goes out of the hallway and starts shooting everybody because he's a psychopath. And he's the one person that really doesn't, he basically does not work out for Reisman, for sure. He was the wrong pick for the job. The Germans then... You know, they know that there's something going on. So all these officers and their girlfriends and their ho- and everybody, they run into this huge underground bomb shelter. So the plan's kind of disrupted, but they run with it. So outside the house, there's a firefight that breaks out between the German guards and the Americans that are out there. Posey ends up getting killed. He's got a machine gun. And so does Binkley. Binkley gets killed as well. Back in the house, Maggot begins hunting his own comrades. And finally, Jefferson finds him. You know, Jim Brown's character and Maggot has been racist towards Jefferson the whole time. But Jim Brown's character, Jefferson, finds him and kills him. And Reisman and Erwadislaw do kill some of the Germans that are that are in the building because they're going down with the soldiers, uh, with the Germans into the bomb shelter. And they're sort of the last ones following in. And then they kill some of the guards at the outside of the bomb shelter. Then they lock the gates, the, the cellar that the Germans are in. And so they lock him in and they should decide to change the plan. They're going to go up back up out into the driveway in the yard and they see where all the air vents are. They're going to pour gasoline in there and then they're going to take all the grenades that they have and they're going to put them in there. So these vents are lined up on a line, you know, several yards apart. And basically Jim Brown, the NFL running back, he's got to run down the line and throw a grenade in each one of the vents to set them off. And so he gets a, he basically gets a running back action but then he gets shot on his way and leg and then he throws the last grenade in and it blows up and the whole thing blows up and he gets killed as well well reisman 
command commandeers an armored troop carrier and heads for the bridge that will get the men to safety. But German soldiers keep arriving on the scene. They just keep coming and coming and coming. And one by one, Germans pick off the Americans, and before long, there's only four left. Reisman is wounded, and as Franco exclaims that they've made it, he's shot. Reisman, Wadislav, and Sergeant Bowron escape with their lives, and that is it. Uh-huh. That's all of the original 12, the Dirty Dozen, you know, not counting Major and, and the Sergeant. Wadislav is the only one that makes it. Only survivor. Well, back in Allied territory, General Warden decrees that the dead convicts will be listed as soldiers who gave their lives honorably in the line of duty. Even Maggot, I guess. <laughs> anyway, he praises Reisman and Wadislaw for a job well done. And there's kind of a concluding part where they show the faces of the ones who have died one by one and their names are called out. So that's it. Great military music is playing and, and we go out with a bang. You know, I have to say that that scene, going back to the scene with the grenades and the and setting them on fire, the gasoline, that's just horrific. That seems really over the top for a 1967 movie, don't you think, or am I wrong? James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatron Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calatron. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calatron contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calatron promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatron has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word BATTLES to 30605, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Once again, text the word BATTLES, B-A-T-T-L-E-S, 30605. You'll be glad you did. After Teddy Roosevelt's failed third-party presidential run, he thought that he would reassemble the Rough Riders for a final charge against the Germans in World War I by launching a cavalry attack against 50 caliber machine guns. Here's an interview with Bill Hazelgrove to look at this incredible story. Teddy Roosevelt was one of these people who seemed indestructible. And that's why I think a lot of Americans wanted him to go, because in a way, he was their Superman. To listen to this full interview, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice. The history of the popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the popes of Rome and church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. Well, I mean, and this is at a time when film is making a changeover. Now, when this film came out, the critics hated the film. It was called sadistic. It was called morbid. It was called wanton. It was very violent for its time. And to have the characters playing psychopaths and murderers and degenerates and negative characters, 
they were not, you know, even though a lot of the, you know, the so these are so-called liberal film critics at the time. And Roger Ebert was in his first year as a reviewer in Sun Times, and he he kind of talked sarcastically about, well, you can censor sex, but she, you know, in Chicago, but you can't censor, you know, you don't, you're not censoring the violence, and you're not censoring burning to death people, you know, in a in a bunker, basically. So it was savaged by the critics as being too violent, overly vicious and violent. But there was a change in a transition in film at this time that was coming because the studio system was sort of falling apart, but also the censorship system was sort of declining as different attitudes about films and about what was allowed in theaters and things. So, you know, this comes out largely pretty much the same, around the same time, uh, same time period as Bonnie and Clyde, which Bonnie and Clyde was an extremely violent movie and almost fetishistically violent considered at the time. And Sam Peckinpah's movies were very violent. They were coming out at the same, around the same time. So, the the idea at the time was that yeah this was a very very violent film but it was also the kind of the pace that Hollywood and that the film industry was moving towards and in retrospect people appreciated the film now the film was hugely successful it was the fourth highest grossing film in 1967 it was a big hit overseas it was a very big hit in France it was one of the fastest grossing films of the time it, it was very huge so it was a massive commercial success. But it just critically, there was criticism about the level of violence, but people bought into it. People were into it. You know, and the thing is, is also in 1967, people were starting to see that, you know, combat footage and, you know, the bodies of men coming, you know, troops coming back from Vietnam on the nightly news. So the idea that, you know, things, people were becoming desensitized to violence in film. And this was emblematic of it and indicative of it. So. But, you know, in retrospect and in, in hindsight and as as time went by, the audience for the film grew and there was more critical acceptance of the film. You know, at the time, the, the ratings were very low in terms of critical rating. Today, it holds about an 81, you know, as you said, it holds an 81% on Rotten Tomato, average rating about 8 out of 10. And it's considered one, like you said, it's considered one of those man movies, right? One of those... It's one of those after it's on Turner Classic on an afternoon on a Saturday afternoon, and guys love to watch it, you know. So, yeah, it is interesting and in that is very masculine and very testosterone driven, but it also is very anti military, it's very anti establishment, it's quite nihilistic. It has a lot of humor though, as well. So, it's a weird mix of things for sure. And the interesting thing also is that. <laughs> is that in the 1980s they made several TV film sequels to The Dirty Dozen. So The Dirty Dozen The Next Mission 1985. So 18 years later, Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine and Richard Jekyll are all back <laughs> to do another mission. And this one I remember it was on TV. I taped it on the VCR and it had Ken Wall and Larry Wilcox, John from Chips. This time he got another group of prisoners and they were going to parachute in and disguise themselves as SS. They were going to disguise themselves as SS troops, even though one of them was black. And they were going to go and prevent an assassination of Hitler in September of 1944. Because the idea was is that if the Germans killed Hitler, then they'd fight the war better. So 
and then the war might last longer. So it was a ridiculous story, a ridiculous movie. But and again, Lee Marvin, who is pretty old in 1967, is so old in the 1985 TV movie. And then they made another one in 87. This one has Ernest Borgnine still, but somehow it has Telly Savalas playing another character. And he's taking the place of Lee Marvin. I think he passed away by that point. And then the last one was also Telly Savalas and Ernest Borgnine. This was in 88. So this is 30 years or 20 years after the original Dirty Dozen. This one also had someone from Chips, from Chips. It had Eric Estrada. And those TV movies were pretty bad. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like they're scraping the bottom of the barrel yeah. there for ideas and, and even for a cast. Oh, yeah. boy. I don't, I don't know if you remember that movie, but those movies, but they were they were pretty bad. I think I sort of do. But... It also had Jeff Conway from Greece, from Kanicki from Greece <laughs> as, mm. as, a, as a sergeant. Yeah, definitely skip those, listener. Well, Sean, why don't we wrap it up and go to the ratings? Are you ready? I know everybody's been waiting for so yes. long. Yes. All right. So, Sean, just as a reminder, the maximum is five points or five stars. So what will you give it? I'm going to give it a Saturday afternoon rating of a four. Four. Okay. It's a perfectly fine movie to have playing on a Saturday afternoon when there's, you know, when you just want to just watch a dumb war movie. Check your brain at the door, huh? Well, and by today's standards, it's way less violent than Fury. Fury's about the most violent movie we watch. Yes. Uh, followed by Stalingrad and by the first 15 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. But And Downfall. Yeah, and Downfall, yeah. So, but it's still, I mean, it's just one of those classics, you know? Yeah, it's a fun movie. I'm going to give it a three and a half, 3.5. So that the composite is 3.75. Okay, well, there we go. Another one. Another one bites the dust, as the old song says. So next time in our next film episode, we are going to do one that we actually mentioned in this episode. Another one with Donald Sutherland, as well as Clint Eastwood and several other big names. Another just fun adventure movie. It's not about a particular battle or anything. It's not about real people, but it's called Kelly's Heroes from 1970. So join us then for that classic fun war movie. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Key Battles of American History is a proud member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, which includes several other podcasts, including History Unplugged by Scott Rank, History of the Papacy and Organized Crime and Punishment by Steve Guerra, This American President by Richard Lim, Eyewitness History by Josh Cohen, Vlogging Through History by Chris Mowry, and The History of North America and Historical Jesus by Mark Vinette. If you haven't already, I strongly encourage you to check out these great podcasts. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, American History Fanatics, where we discuss the episodes of this podcast as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. Consider sharing links to episodes on social media. And fourth, you can join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for Key Battles of American History. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. 
Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to General Jacob Herr, Colonels Carl Archer, Lee Beaumont, Terry Davis, Daniel Fisher, Jay Robison, Josh Simpson, and Jake Wallach. Majors Chris C., Anna Concepcion Castro, Eric Chester, Bob McCullough, Melissa Mueller, and Doug Pergram. Captains Jared Anderson, Ryan Apashian, Lee Barkalow, Joan Belford, Mike C., Alex Calabrese, Carlos Calderon, Ronald Cohen, Alex Coombs, Christopher Craddock, Robbie Edwards, Larry Flowers, Kyle Foster, Richard Foster, Brian Goble, Richard Goldblatt, Arturo Gonzalez III, Rick Hanna, Grant Holmstrom, Stephen James, Mike Leslie, Gary Lenz, Billy Malone, Jose Martinez, Tim Moon, Navy Captain Retired, Michael Patton, Ryan Ramones, David Santee, Scott Saunders, Michael Severino, Daniel Schumer, Scott Taylor, S.B. Tang, Jacob Thomason, Jeff Vandermeulen, and Gregory Works. And Lieutenants Patrick Brennan, Sean Burley, Matthew Christensen, E.E.S., Greg Gongoleski, Scott Hendricks, Who's Your Daddy, Paul Hauschen, Jeff Hoover, David Lueza, Craig Martin, Todd Mendenhall, Graham Ramsey, Tracy Stamp, Larry Elkin, Evan Westerfield. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History. Thank you.